This is an ABC podcast. and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Egi Dubal, here for your Tuesday morning. Thank you for tuning in. Well, what's on the show today? Vanuatu's new government is on rocky ground, and we will be delving into that later in the show. But its troubled airline has more concern, as many travellers across the Pacific are upset over Air Vanuatu's continuous cancellations. I will never sell Air Vanuatu again. I will never sell it, sell it to my customers. I'm not going to put them into the same situation that we've been put in. And we'll cross live to Washington, D.C. to get the latest on the Pacific Forum Leaders Summit and an update on the viral, brutal treatment of an elderly man in Samoa sparks debate on customary law. There have been a few incidents where village councils have used their power to punish people. For more on these stories, simply type into your search engine, ABC Pacific Beat. There, you'll be able to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, hundreds of travellers across the Pacific have been stranded after Vanuatu's national airline cancelled a string of flights over the weekend. The issues look set to continue into this week, spelling difficult days ahead for the troubled airline. Marion Farr takes a look as to whether a newly appointed board could fix the problems. For Philip Iong, transporting tourists around Vanuatu is his bread and butter. Humitus is uh, primarily a company that offers Transfers, uh, mostly Apple transfers and uh, day tours. But a series of flight cancellations by the country's national carrier has impacted his business. I'm not I'm not really sure like in terms of percentage, but we've actually lost a lot of bookings. Since Friday, Air Vanuatu has cancelled or rescheduled more than 20 flights to and from Australia, New Zealand and Fiji. In a statement provided to the ABC, Airport Services Manager Jody Southern said engineering issues were to blame, with the airline's Boeing 737 jet grounded in Brisbane. We are deeply sorry for the inconvenience and frustration this has caused our guests, particularly during the busy school holiday travel period, and we are busy doing what we can to get our guests where they need to go as quickly as possible. We are assisting with accommodation and meals for guests stranded in Vanuatu, and our service desk at the Port Vila Airport remains staffed to help with questions. Australian resident Janice O'Neill says she was extremely disappointed when her flight to Port Vila was cancelled on Friday. My partner had gone over five days previously to go on a fishing trip and the whole idea was that I was to meet him at the beautiful Ericor Island Resort for five days in our beautiful beachfront bungalow and unfortunately he is there by himself. He's meant to come home on Wednesday and has had his flight now cancelled without any idea of when he can get home. Ms O'Neill, who works as a travel agent, says it's a bad look for Air Vanuatu. I will never sell Air Vanuatu again. I will never sell sell it to my customers. I'm not going to put them into the same situation that we've been put in. It's not the first time Air Vanuatu has run into issues. Late last year, more Australian tourists were stranded just days out from Christmas after an Air Vanuatu plane was grounded for maintenance. Passengers were delayed by a week and complained about poor communication from the airline. Philip Iong from Yumi Tours is worried about Vanuatu's reputation if the issues persist. 
having on my and I follow a lot of uh, forums on social media and people actually uh, are very anxious and are very angry at the same time with all the disruptions. Most of them having already paid their air tickets and cancellations without proper explanations about refunds and stuff like that. I mean, it's not a good picture to paint for Vanuatu as a whole. Mr Ayong says he's lucky he can still rely on business from cruise ships to keep his operation afloat, but he says others have it worse. I think the hotels would be the ones who would see more, like, really affected from the flight disruptions, whereas for us, like, in our operations... We're affected, but it's not to a really big extent. Amid the turmoil, the Vanuatu government has appointed a new Air Vanuatu board with Moana Kakases Kalasil as chair. The board met for the first time yesterday with Mr Kalasil apologising to customers. We are trying to find solution quickly to help them to catch a flight and going back home. He says he's determined to work through the issues. I've been put there because of my long-term capacity to fix problems. As you know, I've been a former Prime Minister of this country, so I understand. I cannot say more than that. I'll be able, after the Prime Minister make his statement, then you can call me and I can be specific on how we're going to run the island. Can you tell me which problems you want to fix? What problems do you see? I cannot say anything now until I can meet with the board officially and uh, sit down. The incoming chair says he's hoping for support from the Vanuatu government to move forward. And that's Marion Farr reporting. Well, Pacific leaders are in Washington, D.C. this week for the U.S. Pacific Forum Leaders Summit, hosted by President Joe Biden. Leaders are preparing for the start of talks today, but one Pacific leader who will be absent is Solomon's Prime Minister, Manasi Songovari, and it's unclear what impact his absence will have on these talks. Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Anna Poles, a senior lecturer at the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at Massey University in New Zealand. With that, I say kia ora. Welcome to the show. Kia ora, thank you for having, having me. Uh, Dr. Poles, uh, could you please maybe explain what's the atmosphere there in Washington DC uh, among the Pacific delegates? Uh, is there anything that you're seeing at the moment? Well, just to just to be clear, I'm, I'm not actually at the, the um, US Pacific Summit Obviously, that's closed door uh, event, uh, but there are a lot of other related Pacific uh, conferences and roundtables happening this week in Washington. So there is a bit of a buzz at the moment. Obviously, this is the second uh, U.S. Pacific summit that's been held uh, obviously since last year. So there's a great deal of sort of uh, you know expectations about what's going to come out of it. We had UNGA last week, the UN General Assembly, uh, and the meeting of the partners in the Blue Pacific Initiative last week as well. So there is you know, extraordinary focus on the Pacific in Washington now. There are you know, numerous think tanks who are holding breakfast meetings and, and a series of roundtables, as I mentioned. And so there is a real sense of engagement and interest uh, in the region. Are you aware or you understand what the purpose of the summit is with uh, US President Joe Biden? Oh, absolutely. So this is obviously, you know, for to begin with, it's very much about once once again reinforcing that the US is uh, not just back in the Pacific, but that it is actually seeking to deliver on some fairly significant commitments that it has made to the region over the past 12 to 18 months. And 
this is really important. It's, it's, it's an important meeting because, as I said, you know, it's, it's a second meeting at the White House that's been held. Notably, uh, it is, you know, last year's meeting was called the Pacific Islands Country Summit. This year's meeting uh, has been renamed the U.S. Pacific Islands Forum Summit. So sending a very strong signal about the importance of the Pacific Islands Forum, a forum centrality, which was a message that the, U- that the Pacific Island countries were really strongly getting ahead. And it's very clear from the statement that's come out uh, already on reaffirming the U.S.-Pacific partnership that the U.S. is listening to a number of issues that the Pacific have been raising over the years, uh, particularly with respect to to climate change, to unexploded ordinance. uh, But also there's also some refreshing of commitments that were made last year and specifically around the Tuna Treaty, for instance. So it's not exactly, it's not actually clear whether or not that congressional funding has been released uh, for the region. So there is a sense of sort of wait and see as well. Mm. I mean, when we look at it through a geopolitical lens, um, how significant is this summit? You know, in the terms, I know you briefly touched on it, in terms of competition for the influence in the Pacific. Well, I think it's worthwhile noting that uh, the the statement that I just mentioned, uh, the reaffirming of the partnership between the US and the Pacific countries that has been released, sends a really strong signal. It's a much deeper statement than we've seen before around around the relationship, and it sends a really strong signal that the US is listening to what Pacific countries are, are calling for uh, and what Pacific priorities are as laid out in the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific and the Boy Declaration. Um, and so there's a sense that, yes, we can't ignore the fact that the summit is taking place in the context of, of, of broader strategic competition, and we can't ignore the fact that strategic competition uh, is taking place in the in the region in the Pacific, um, but there will be there will certainly be some hope that that whilst there is recognition that the that obviously the U.S. is that its concerns around China are going to of course pro, um, you know, inform uh, a lot of its its decision making and and and, and interests and ambitions in the region, but that there's also a sense of engaging with the region um, on the basis of what regional priorities are as well. Mm. So it is it is very important. Yeah, Doctor, do you have any expectations that you want to come out from this US-Pacific summit? Well, I think it's going to be really interesting to, there have been a number of sort of placeholder statements that have been made already uh, with respect to, again, you know, the reopening of, the expanding of the US diplomatic footprint in the Pacific, you know, um, reopening of embassies, including signaling uh, for Vanuatu in 2024. But again, that's also dependent on congressional, the release of congressional funds, um, as well as a number of other new initiatives you know, greater mention of, for instance, support to veterans, uh, as well as the training of Pacific militaries and leadership and so forth. And so there's been a, there's, there's, you know, a number of different, uh, initiatives that are on the table. But what I think will be really interesting is actually what happens next. The next summit is not actually scheduled now until 2025. And that's not surprising because of the US elections next year. But how that momentum is maintained 
between now and 2025 is is something that we're all going to be watching. Yes, a great deal is going to be happening, obviously, uh, within the US government itself. Uh, but certainly from a from the perspective of, of many Pacific leaders who I've spoken to, there's a sense of of very much welcoming U.S. re-engagement in the region, but wanting to see how sustainable it is uh, and and how much they are actually able to deliver on, given the reliance on securing funds still. Yes, and I wanted to touch on that. I mean, at last year's summit, uh, there was the promise of funding from the U.S., and we believe that's yet to materialise. So is that likely to affect how uh, Pacific countries are going to deal with the U.S.? Well, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, there's everyone knew at the time that it was dependent on on um, congressional support for this, and I'm presumably referring to the Tuna Treaty um, with the additional funds allocated for that. But there is a sense that the US is going to need to start delivering faster, that the window of opportunity for tangibles, is um, for the delivery of tangibles is, is going to be closing. And of course, there is a sense of, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the next um, US election. We don't know who's going to be in the White House then and whether the Pacific will receive the same degree of prioritization as it has under President Biden. So there is some sense of, you know, again, kind of wait and see. Uh, but the US does need to move certainly move beyond those placeholder commitments, those placeholder statements and promises and actually deliver some tangible outcomes in the region. Absolutely. Uh, we look to Solomon Islands. I mean, uh, their Prime Minister, Manasi Songovari, uh, is giving this year's summit a miss. How do you interpret his non-attendance? Well, I think his non-attendance um, probably does you know, he he did state that he needed to be back in Honiara uh, uh, for for business and parliament, but I I imagine that there are many who will cast this decision not to come to Washington in the context, of course, of his speech to the UN General Assembly last week, um, in which he uh, singled out China uh, very strongly and and heaped praise on. Uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, um, its Global Development Initiative, and particularly its Global Security Initiative uh, as well. So there is this, and he, he also highlighted the Comprehensive Strategic Framework, which uh, China and and Solomon Islands signed when uh, the Prime Minister Kovacic visited in July. So I'm sure that there are many here in Washington who are are putting two and two together and 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 thinking that that uh, Zogovare is not coming because of, of his relationship with China. I think it's notable though that he you know he is sending his foreign minister um, Jeremiah Manelli um, in his place, and this is a way of both ensuring that Solomon Islands is still at the table, but also reinforcing the signal that Prime Minister Zogovare is wanting to send to the US at the same time uh, with his absence. So. It's the relationship has not been an easy one between Solomon Islands and the US. I I think that there more can be done, certainly on the side of the United States, to to rebuild that relationship um, in a way that's not backing the prime minister into a corner and and actually seeking to to 
develop it in a way. We've certainly seen over the past several years there's been a degree of sort of foghorn diplomacy taking place, um, and that simply just hasn't been successful. So there needs to be a new strategy. Mm, thank you for that, Doctor. Uh, if you just tuned in, we're listening to Pacific Begin on this Tuesday morning. Uh, we've got Pacific leaders who are in the US for a Pacific summit, and I'm talking to Dr. Anna Poles about what we can actually expect from these talks. Uh, doctor, I want to ask, the US is giving official recognition to Cook Islands and you where? I mean, what is the significance of this? Well, we did. Um, we already knew that this was uh, something that the US was 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 going to be doing um, uh, early last year, actually. Um, and but you know, recognizing Cook Islands and Niue as as independent states, um, you know, providing with the you know, formal, um, you know, establishing formal uh, diplomatic relations um, for the first time, it's, you know, it is fairly fairly sig- sig- um, significant. It, what it does is also is is really in- Enable uh, Cook Islands and UA to access uh, funds uh, w- from the US in a way that they haven't been able to uh, to date, and and that's one of the most significant aspects of that um, of that of of the US recognizing uh, UA and 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 Cook Islands. Obviously, you know there's there's going to be discussions in some quarters about what that means uh, for for instance Cook Islands. Um, uh, move towards independence, and that's a conversation that obviously Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Cook Islands are, are having. Um, and but it is it is it is very it is significant for for both of those countries. Uh, but it's it, it also there is also you know some in some quarters there's a there's you know it, some thought that that this is also uh, should be seen in the light of geopolitical competition too. Um, uh, given Cook Islands and U.S. relationship with China, uh, but most importantly, it is about enabling those two countries to uh, access funding mm-hmm. uh, with the U.S. We look at these relationships between the U.S. and Pacific countries, it being a two-way thing. Do you really think, though, the U.S. is paying attention to the Pacific's concerns? You know, often it centers around climate change. Your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, there are a number of um, statements within in the reaffirming partnership statement, which has come out with respect to climate change, um, and there's also uh, and a number of commitments that are, again um, that are being made, as well as wider commitments with respect to other issues which are of concern uh, to the region. And for instance, around transnational crime, maritime security, you know, uh, Biden has announced a new military partnership, for instance, sending the first U.S. Uh, Coast Guard vessel, which is will be solely dedicated to to collaborating and training with with Pacific nations and investing 11 million into maritime domain awareness technology in the region so there is so these are these there's two sides to this obviously there's you know there's uh the way in which these initiatives can meet both pacific needs if they're done properly uh, but they can also meet those broader strategic uh, concerns that the that the US also has um, climate change obviously though is the existential threat and the number one priority for the Pacific and it will be waiting to see how the Pacific delivers uh, on how the US delivers on this rather uh, both now but also in Dubai at COP. Awesome. Uh, Doctor, look, we just want to say thank you very much for your insight and time this morning. All the best for the conversations that you'll be having while you're there in Washington, D.C.
My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. No Thank worries. You. That, of course, is Dr. Anna Poles, a senior lecturer at the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at Massey University in Aotearoa. She was speaking from Washington, D.C. <laughs> That is right. It is time to check out what is happening across the region. Uh, we've got our news rep with producer Carl Evans this morning. How are you doing? Good morning to you, Aggie. I'm well. How about yourself? I am doing well. Uh, let's start off. It doesn't look too uh, a little bit grim with our first story, but a member of a New Zealand yachting crew uh, has died while sailing in the waters near Fiji. What has actually happened? Yeah, that's right, Aggie. It is a, a sad one. Um, uh, one person has died and two more seriously injured after that was struck by a broken uh, mast. Um, yeah, during during a sailing trip there. Um, this is reported by the New Zealand Herald, and it comes after the crew sent out a mayday distress call uh, off the coast of Nandi at around 9pm on Sunday evening. Uh, the, the call actually sparked a response from an Australian cruise ship, the Pacific Explorer, who diverted its route uh, so it could actually assist um, the people on board. However, it was actually too big. Um, it could only winch aboard one of the survivors and couldn't launch tenders uh, due to the rough waters. So the other person, unfortunately, was left to stay on the boat until yesterday afternoon uh, before they were eventually collected by a Fijian, uh, a Fijian Navy vessel. But, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, the, the, the other person on the vessel uh, sadly lost their mm, life. Goodness. Uh, has there been any updates, though, on the survivors? So... The, uh, the last reports say uh, both were being taken back to Fiji, one obviously on board the Pacific Explorer with the other on board the uh, the Navy vessel. Um, the the deceased as well is also being taken to Fiji, and we can confirm that uh, police and consular services back uh, in New Zealand um, have been notified. Uh, the Pacific Explorer itself, that was actually on an eight-day trip uh, out from Auckland and happened to be heading to, to, um, to Suva, I believe, as well, so... Not good news. Uh, definitely our condolences go out to the families there. Uh, we head to a new report that's been quoted. Uh, former U.S. President Donald as saying Guam is in America. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah, you, uh, former U.S. President Donald Trump uh, has been quoted saying as Guam isn't America. So um, it's a really interesting one. This uh, The Atlantic um, reported that the former president had little regard, apparently, for the safety of the island and its some 160,000 U.S. citizens. So that's according to a new report titled The Patriot, um, how General Mark Milley protected the Constitution from Donald Trump. And it chronicles how some of the US's highest ranking military officers and secretary, um, the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Councils, uh, how they had to restrain uh, Mr. Trump from certain decisions uh, from time to time. And uh, according to the report, Trump was actually warned about not provoking uh, dictator Kim Jong-un, the, the dictator of North Korea, because he could be pressured by his own elites to, to launch an attack on Guam, which is obviously an, a major American interest. However, according to the report, Trump reportedly responded with, Guam isn't America. Uh, even though Guam has been a U.S. territory since uh, 1898 and is often referred to as the tip of the spear uh, in the Pacific and is a very valuable uh, U.S. asset, Aggie. 
Look, I, I will, we'll take Guam. The Pacific <laughs> will take Guam. Uh, but have they? Has Guam actually issued a response since the article came out? Well, the Guam Daily Post uh, obviously picked this one up. They, they they found it very very interesting. No surprises there. And they did actually go out and seek comment uh, from the governor, uh, Lou Leon Guerrero's administration. Uh, however, um, uh, uh, they they did choose not to respond to the comment. Simply responding with no comment. Not surprising in some ways, given look in less than twelve months' time, uh, Mr. Trump could be president again if he wins the election, and I'm sure that uh, they're probably one again to keep him on side, particularly if those comments are uh, are true, Aggie. <laughs> I'm just going to say no comment. <laughs> but finally, uh, there's a PNG footballer from PNG, of course, has claimed an Australian rules premiership. Is that right? Yeah, great story. So, Hawago uh, Paul Ace Oaya has uh, claimed a VFL premiership as a member of the Gold Coast Suns. So, they defeated Werribee 112 to 93 over the weekend in what was a history-making match in more ways than one. Uh, not only was it the Suns' first ever premiership, uh, uh, Oaya actually became the first locally developed uh, PNG footballer to win a flag, having come through uh, the Pacific AFL um, pathway program. So um, just to clarify for the listeners, uh this is the VFL, so this is the Victorian Football League. It's not to be confused with the AFL, which is the top tier competition. The VFL is a is a pathway to that competition, and it's still very much considered a considered elite. Um, but no, look, it's still a, a massive achievement. It really does cap off a, a fairy tale year for Ace. Um, I was actually watching the game earlier this year when he made his AFL debut for the Suns in the senior competition. Actually, kicked a goal with his very first kick. Uh, had wow. his his family come over for PNG, from PNG to to mark the occasion. Mm. So uh, to see them do this is fantastic. And uh, and look, you know, given he played a, a you know a, a, an important role in this VFL winning side, I reckon we'll see him play uh, a, lot, a lot more AFL games uh, in the in the months and years to come. Beautiful. Love hearing stories like that. Uh, thank you for our news wrap this morning, Kyle. Thank you, Aggie. This is Pacific Beat. Join me, Sosafina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On The Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Thubong, as we head to Samoa with a brutal treatment of an elderly man who was beaten, tied to a stick by his wrists and ankles, and carried like a pig through his village has shocked the nation. Video footage taken of the incident in Savai earlier this month has gone viral on social media and sparked a debate about customary law. The 73-year-old man was taken to hospital after he was allegedly bashed, hogtied and banished by local men on the orders of the village council. Police have charged 12 men over the incident, one with attempted murder. Now, our reporter in Apia, Adele Fruin, is following the story and joins us live this morning. Malo le soifu, Adele. Yeah, thank you for joining us this morning. Very much a bit of a, a, a grim story here, but can you tell us what has actually happened? Thank you. On the day of the incident, the Lefangoli village representatives visited the elderly father's home in the morning to inform him of his banishment and that he must vacate the village by 4 p.m. However, the second time the village came, it resulted in the victim being hogtied and carried out of his home because of allegedly defying his village's orders.
In a video of the incident, one of the villagers was heard cursing and yelling that allegedly the victim was to blame for being arrogant toward a church minister and the village. Also, local authorities were able to locate a man who was heard in the viral video ordering Aumu to be prepared to cook the person who was being hogtied. Um, for our listeners, Aumu is the traditional method of cooking food in Samoa, which is typically set up outdoor. Following police charging six chiefs and six untitled men in connection with the incident, one of the men charged with attempted murder appeared before the Supreme Court yesterday with his lawyer requesting bail. However, the matter has been adjourned to next week, Monday, so prosecution can finalise the charges. Uh, Adele, I have to ask, though, just off the cuff here, uh, we talked about customary law. Are you aware that this seems to go against, you know, the VAR or the relationship that we have with our elderly people? Uh, Any conversation around that? Thank you. Um, In terms of, you know, for Samoa to maintain social order and justice, you know, it's upheld through two parallel systems, basically. The formal Western traditional and legal system and the traditional justice mechanism provided by village councils. However, you know, when we're talking about the, you know, this clash between, um, you know, customary law and modern law, you know, we have to, um, you know, take into consideration the fact that um, village councils hold significant power you know a, a certain power has been given to them through a village funnel act now when we talk about uh, you know that aspect of respect for our elders you know that is also part of our culture but you know when in terms of you know the village council has this significant power which you know gives them you know the the amount of uh, power to impose certain punishments However, you know, this is this must abide with the Village Funnel Act, you know, mm-hmm. as of today. Uh, are you aware, though, of his injuries? Has there been anything life-threatening or is he in a good, stable condition? So at the moment, um, he, you know, he has recovered from, you know, from his injuries. After all, he was not only, you know, carried, you know, like, you know, hogtied, but he was also thrown on the ground, you know, during the process. And also he was beaten, you know, and, and he also was not aware during the time when he was, you know, apparently he was stabbed below the neck. So, and, you know, at the moment, you know, after he, you know, after such injuries, you know, he's been treated. And so now he's able to, you know, walk and, you know, function properly now, you know, compared to a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I understand that the victim has actually given an interview to a media outlet. Do you know what he's actually said? Yes. You know, before he could share his experience, he revealed that he was unsure, you know, of the real reason behind him being punished. He alleged that, you know, he was first beaten, then tied to a stick and carried off, you know, and um, and that, you know, after, you know, he was carried and, you know, said before the village council, the village, you know, he said that church ministers kneeled before the village and pleaded to spare him, you know, at the time. And despite, you know, all that's happened in the incident, he forgives his village and hopes, you know, it will return to its foundations. How have the people of the community reacted to this? I mean, are opinions divided or are most people condemning what happened? 
While some people had gone on social media and defended the actions of the village council, saying that this form of punishment is part of the culture, but more people have condemned such actions, saying that these forms of punishment were only upheld in the olden days. Former Prime Minister Tsul Epa, Dr. Sailele Malilingoi, also condemned the actions of the village council, saying it was a clear-cut abuse of power by the majority. He revealed in a letter to the editor that the Lefangoli village reintroduced an ancient cultural punishment imposed on anyone who opposed a village council decision. He went on to say that these kinds of abuse of authority must stop. It is an embarrassment to all Samoans who hold their country with great pride to see these abuses occurring. Um, Adele, I have to, you know, you have already spoken about this, but at the end of the day, what powers do village councils actually have? And uh, has this kind of thing happened before? Lovely. Now, village councils hold great or significant power and authority in setting priorities, you know, for the, for example, for the provision of health, agricultural development, business operations, even customary observances, but it must abide by the Village Funnel Act. Decisions made by the village councils can be challenged at the land and titles court, you know, where citizens are able to report criminal matters to the police. But specifically, the village council have the power to impose banishment, fines, you know, as a result of various offences or misconduct, you know, but it has to be in accordance with the act. Uh, his, someone historian, author and retired academic, Dr. Malama Malaysia, says some village councils incorrectly believe they have the powers to do whatever they like. Here's what he has to say about the matter. There have been a few incidents where you know, village councils have used their power to punish people, uh, meet out this kind of punishment. And two or three incidents that I can think of, it was a uh, uh, incident in uh, Tanungamanono where Tanungamanono uh, people burned down the house of a family because because they didn't agree with what the village did. And the village, well, the, the family sued the village and then the, the, the court fined the village a huge amount of money. So that's another example of, of the village council abusing in a very nasty sort of way. And... Uh, the law has been very firm in that respect about village councils who try to uh, abuse that authority. That is Professor Malama Malaysia, Director of the Centre for Samoan Studies at the University of Samoa. And just before that, we were speaking to our reporter in Apia, Adele Frewen. Pacific Beat. Just weeks after gaining power, Vanuatu's new government is on rocky grounds. An attempt by the government to suspend the former Prime Minister and Parliament Speaker has backfired. And now the opposition appears to have increased its political support. Joining us now to help us unravel Vanuatu politics is ABC reporter Leah Loanbu from the Vanuatu Broadcasting Corporation and Television Newsroom. With that, I say good morning, Leah. Good morning. Well, the last time we spoke, uh, the government was trying to suspend the former Prime Minister, Ishmael Karl and the Speaker of Parliament. But that situation has now changed. So can you tell us where things stand now? Yes, that's uh, correct. Uh, in Parliament yesterday, uh, when the uh, members of uh, Parliament met to discuss the motions against uh, former Prime Minister Ishmael Karl and also the Speaker, 
the government withdrew all the motion uh, that was uh, to be discussed. What happened was that the speaker at the start of the session in parliament yesterday, Simeon uh, Seule, announced that he has made a decision to vacate the seat of a member of, of the Amprem constituencies in the government uh, side, saying he was uh, absent from three parliament sitting without providing reasons of this, uh, his absence. Uh, after heated debate yesterday in Parliament uh, to remove the MP from Parliament yesterday before they could uh, continue with the discussions of the motion, the government decided to withdraw all the motions uh, yesterday. Uh, Leah, can I ask, you see that there was a bit of a heated debate. What were the words that were being thrown around? So uh, the government disagreed with uh, the decision of the Speaker of Parliament to remove the uh, Member of Parliament of Amprem constituency, who was uh, recently appointed as the Minister of Youth and Sports. And so the opposition side was saying that he should uh, move out of the Parliament chambers, but the government is saying only the court has the right to vacate the seat of any members of the Parliament. So that that continued, and uh, the uh, government decided that they will withdraw all the motions. Now, we know the government won office and a no-confidence vote back in August. It was 26 to 23. Leah, does that still have the majority, though? Um, no, there seems to be some changes. It's hard to say now, today, uh, what's uh, happening, but we do know that uh, two MPs from the government are now with the opposition, and in Parliament yesterday, government had uh, 26 MPs, while the opposition's number grew to 25 members. And in the latest development, opposition has submitted a motion of no confidence against uh, the Prime Minister Sato Kirman. Uh, we have not yet been able to have access to the uh, document signed, the motion, but we have confirmation from Parliament officials that it was signed by 26 MPs. Wow. So why are some of the government MPs deserting Prime Minister Sato Kilman now? Well, I think, um, again, I think it's because they're unhappy about some of the decisions that Prime Minister Sato Kilman has made. Uh, we cannot get uh, a clear explanation from them. It's really hard to get a comment from these MPs who have moved to the opposition uh, to uh, say themselves and explain why they've uh, made the move. But uh, they they are unhappy in some uh, about some of the decisions that uh, the uh, prime minister Sato Kilman, the government uh, people in the government have have made. Mm. As always, it's not just about the government; it is about the people of uh, Vanuatu. So, what are they saying about this deteriorating state of Vanuatu politics? I think for now, most of the people are quite exhausted uh, about the situation happening. And yeah, uh, since from the start, many are saying they're tired of this instability and uh, some are even um, saying that they should be uh, dissolved of the parliament so that uh, people can go into election again and elect new members uh, because many are predicting that this ongoing fight uh, between politicians is not going to end no matter who takes in, uh, takes power, takes uh, position uh, in, in the government. Uh, so, yeah, that's what the people are saying. They all want uh, all this situation to end so the government could uh, really focus on the important uh, issues that are affecting the country at this time.
Mm, absolutely. Uh, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Aggie Dubol. Joining with me from Vanuatu is uh, ABC reporter Leah Loanbu discussing Vanuatu politics. Let's talk about the opposition over the weekend, though. There was that gathering. And can you tell us about it? Like, who is leading them and what are they after? Mm. So the opposition went into camp uh, after the... Uh, newly elected member of Malekula uh, made a bold decision to join the opposition. So, uh, uh, and also another MP from the government side, who uh, was the Minister of Youth and Sport, also made a decision to join the, the opposition camp. And again, the opposition saying that uh, they're not happy that this government ha- no have no plans. Uh, to take the uh, the country forward uh, in important issues that uh, they need to address, they don't have um, um, plans that uh, concrete plans that are in place to take the country forward. But we know the government has been in power on only three weeks uh, after the motion to remove the former prime minister. So. Uh, that's what the, the opposition is saying, and already they are aiming to uh, look into a motion to remove the current prime minister. Mm. Uh, finally, I want to have to ask, Leah, we've reported on the situation uh, at Ivanuatu. I'm wondering, is this in any way affecting politics at the moment? Mm. So, yeah, um, Ivanuatu has cancelled a lot of flights to Australia and New Zealand since uh, late last week, and the airline says there's a mechanical issue with the 737, which is the only plane for international flight. Now, it is waiting for parts from overseas. The airline doesn't know when the schedule will return to normal, but it is using Air Nauru to operate some uh, flights. Um, as we all know, hundreds of people are stranded, and a lot of passengers are complaining about the lack of information from the airline about what, when they'll be booked on a flight, and some people may be stranded in Vanuatu for a week or more. We've spoken to the Prime Minister yesterday, but they haven't uh, uh, provided some of the um, specific information in terms of the Air Vanuatu. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think with the current issue of politics, it, it is affecting the national airline to move forward with its plan. Uh, the last government has... Uh, uh, put in some plans in place to have a new um, CEO and also to look into some of the issues of the national airline. But with the ongoing uh, issues of politics, it's affecting the development to um, uh, fix the national airline. So the prime minister says they have plans, short-term plans and some long-term plans, and they're planning to take in new aircrafts that will help uh, uh, the uh, airline. Nice. Leah, look, we want to appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into what's happening there in Vanuatu. Thank you. Uh, that is ABC's reporter in Vanuatu, Leah Lonbu, who's also part of Vanuatu's Broadcasting Television Corporation's newsroom. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's at 6am PNG time, but you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next, followed by Jacob McGuire with Nisha Daily. Uh, and we'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of Kulin Nation. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubol, and this is Pacific Beat.